Hello and welcome back to Corona Cold Reads, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Now that we've completed Shakespeare and Chekhov's canons, our troupe of professional and amateur theater lovers together is taking on great works across mediums. So from Aaron Sorkin to indie playwrights, Valentine's rom-coms, French classics, Greek tragedies, so much more. We've got everything coming up for you. So Shaw, Stoppard, Moliere, Efron, and so much more coming down the pike. So for you to enjoy in audio form here on our podcast feed, or if you want to catch all of our costumes, props, effects, and unplanned pet appearances, um, all of our readings are also available on our YouTube channel. Just search My Entertainment World and you'll see it there. Um, please keep in mind that these are genuinely cold readings. We're publishing unedited, so bear with us through some stumbles, tangents, and of course, every time someone's accidentally on mute. Um, that happens all the time. Sometimes people don't show up. You just got to bear with us. Uh, so to make sure you don't miss any of our content, be sure to subscribe on YouTube or on our podcast feed where you'll find episodes of all our favorite ongoing series, including this one, of course, as well as the Shakespeare series, the favorite series, Corona Movie Club, exclusive interviews, as well as our annual MLB roundtable discussion, which is my very favorite thing we do. So follow us on social media at MyEntWorld, my E-N-T world. Um, and of course, check out the website, MyEntertainmentWorld.ca, where you can find all of the above, as well as reviews, editorials, artist spotlights, and so much more. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. Carrying on 20th century classics season, um, we did The Glass Menagerie. Uh, I felt like you couldn't possibly do a 20th century classic season without Tennessee Williams. And my personal favorite is The Glass Menagerie. Um, mostly because I find Streetcar too upsetting. Um, but The Glass Menagerie, I think, is really... It's it's sad in a beautiful way. And I think that that's um, a really compelling dynamic and something that I'm, I'm more comfortable feeling, I suppose, than the... Um, really hard feelings in other Tennessee Williams. There is no easy Tennessee Williams play. Um, and if I have to be miserable, the direction of misery towards which the glass menagerie points me, um, is one that I'm, I'm happier to live in, uh, than some of the others. And so, uh, the glass menagerie, I also just think it's beautifully written play with, um, some really lovely direct address monologues. Um, and we also had sort of the right casting. It's a unique one in that this is the smallest cast we've ever had. It's only a four-person play, and one of the parts is quite small. Um, so it's really sort of a three-hander with a guest star kind of vibe, um, which including stage directions men, we only had five people in the cast. Um, and we specifically had, we had a guest star for Amanda. Heidi Hawkins, Jeanette, came on as Amanda. She was so beautiful, like so just like lived in and complex and her accent was on point and she was just she was a lovely amanda very very complex role um and then we had our newcomer olivia john was was a very lovely vulnerable laura um so it was actually a very different cast for us we had uh, some guest stars small cast a uh, very different vibe, but it was it was a lovely experience to have them come in and play the glass menagerie. Of course, we had um, one of our mainstays, Mark Crater, took on Tom, and he was he was lovely as well. Um, I always love Mark in a big leading role. He really sort of unleashes um, 
a lot of potential that we, when we cast him in smaller roles, I'm sort of like, oh, wait, oh, he had, but then now his line is over. So it's always nice to see him really get a chunk of work um, that he gets to really sink his teeth into. And so Tom was really compelling. And um, actually my favorite piece of casting in this, um, I mean, though this cast was really marvelous. My very favorite piece of casting here was actually Dom Harvey as Jim. Um, so Dom is not an actor at all. Uh, and so he's usually come in and played uh, roles that just kind of I thought were appropriate to him. Uh, so he came, you know, he did a, he played his little British roles and he, he was the reality TV producer in one of the Sorkin plays because um, he's a reality TV podcaster. And I thought that was funny. Um but this is the first, or I've cast him as um, in a few sort of like romantic roles opposite his real life partner, that kind of thing. Um, but this was the first time he's been alone. He didn't have Sadie with him and he just came in just independently to play the uh, young suitor, Jim, who is the character who comes in partway through the play and has this like really lovely sort of piece in the middle. Like it's almost like a little thing, vignette in the middle of this family drama where he kind of takes over the narrative and then he leaves and he, he's my favorite character in the play. He leaves an incredibly in- interesting impact. Um, and there's so many different ways to play Jim. Uh, I, and I find that the, the choices that that actor makes really influence how I feel about the play um, and about all the rest of the characters in the play. And there was just something really, really lovely and delicate about the way that Dom played Jim. There was a, a real sort of sadness and, and um, almost like a, like a, the Dom's incredibly smart. And so there's something about br- the way he brings, what he brings to that character um, has this like sort of potential feeling that I think is really important to Jim. This idea of like, what does he do? doing here trapped in this factory job he's like go and he can't and i think there's something really compelling about what dom was able to bring just naturally to the role just by being himself and so um there's a a lovely tenderness to those scenes between him and olivia that um really stand out in my memory of this of this particular reading um in addition to how wonderful heidi was so um and also marlo k shaw came on for stage directions and it's always lovely to have her she's such a steady voice so I hope you enjoy this one. It's really, it's a beautiful play. Let's try that again. So we've got um, Heidi as Amanda. Hi. And we've got um, Olivia John as Laura. Hello. Um, and Mark, is it pronounced Crater? Crater. Mike means Crater. Okay. As Tom. Hi. And um, Dom Harvey as Jim. Hi. And I'm Marlo, and I'm reading stage directions. This is The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. Scene one. The Wingfield apartment is in the rear of the building, one of those vast hive-like conglomerations of cellular living units that flower as warty growths in overgrown urban centers of lower middle-class population and are symptomatic of the impulse of this largest and fundamentally enslaved section of American society to avoid fluidity and differentiation and to exist and function as one interfused mass of automation, automation. The apartment faces an alley and is entered by a fire escape, a structure whose name is a touch of accidental poetic truth for all of these huge buildings are always burning with the slow and implacable fires of human desperation. The fire escape is included in the set, that is, the landing of it and steps descending from it. 
The scene is memory and therefore non-realistic. Memory takes a lot of poetic license. It omits some details. Others are exaggerated according to the emotional value of the articles it touches. For memory is seated predominantly in the heart. The interior is therefore rather dim and poetic. At the rise of the curtain, the audience is faced with the dark grim rear wall of the Wingfield tenement. This building, which runs parallel to the footlights, is flanked on both sides by dark, narrow alleys, which run into murky canyons of tangled cloth lines, garbage cans, and the sinister latticework of neighboring fire escapes. It is up and down these alleys that exterior entrances and exits are made during the play. At the end of Tom's opening commentary, the dark tenement wall slowly reveals, by means of a transparency, the interior of the ground floor Wingfield apartment. Downstairs is the living room, which also serves as a sleeping room for Laura. The sofa is unfolding to make her bed. Upstairs, center, and divided by a wide arch or second proscenium with transparent faded portiers or second curtain is the dining room. In an old-fashioned whatnot in the living room are seen scores of transparent glass animals. A blown-up photograph of the father hangs on the wall of the living room, facing the audience, to the left of the archway. It is the face of a very handsome young man in a doughboy's first world cap, first world war cap. He is gaily smiling, ineluctably smiling, as if to say, I will be smiling forever. The audience hears and sees the opening scene in the dining room through both the transparent fourth wall of the building and the transparent gauze portiers of the dining room arch. It is during this revealing scene that the fourth wall slowly ascends out of sight. This transparent exterior wall is not brought down until, it, until the very end of the play, during Tom's final speech. The narrator is an undisguised convention of the play. He takes whatever license with dramatic convention is convenient to his purpose. Tom enters dressed as a merchant sailor from Alley, stage left, and strolls across the front of the stage to the fire escape. There he stops and lights a cigarette. He addresses the audience. Yes. I have tricks in my pocket. I have things up my sleeve. But I am the opposite of a stage magician. He gives you illusion that has the appearance of truth. I give you truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion. To begin with, I turn back time. I reverse to the quaint period of the 30s, when the huge middle class of America was matriculating in a school for the blind. Their eyes had failed them, or they had failed their eyes. And so they were having their fingers pressed forcibly down on the fiery braille alphabet of a dissolving economy. In Spain, there was revolution. Here, there was only shouting and confusion. In Spain, there was Guernica. Here, there was disturbances of labor, sometimes pretty violent, in otherwise peaceful cities such as Chicago, Cleveland, St. Louis. This is the social background of the play. The play is memory. Being a memory play, it is dimly lighted. It is sentimental. It's not realistic. In a memory, everything seems to happen to music. The, that explains the fiddle and the wings. I am the narrator of the play and also a character in it. The other characters are my mother, Amanda, my sister, Laura, and a gentleman caller who appears in the final scenes. He is the most realistic character in the play, being an emissary from a world of reality that we were somehow set apart from. But since I have a poet's weakness for symbols, I am using this character also as a symbol. He is the long delayed but always expected something that we live for. 
there is a fifth character in the play who doesn't appear except in this larger than life size photograph over the mantle. This is our father who left us a long time ago. He was a telephone man who fell in love with long distances. <laughs> he gave up his job with the telephone company and skipped the lights. Fantastic out of town. The last we heard of him, he was a picture postcard from Mazatlan and on the Pacific coast of Mexico, containing a message of two words, hello, goodbye, and no address. I think the rest of the play will explain itself. Amanda's voice becomes audible through the portiers. Legend on screen, Wisson Le Neige. He divides the portiers and enters the upstage area. Amanda and Laura are seated at a drop leaf table. Eating is indicated by gestures without food or utensils. Amanda faces the audience. Tom and Laura are seated in profile. The interior has lit up softly and through the scrim, we see Amanda and Laura seated at the table in the upstage area. Tom. Yes, mother. We can't say grace until you come to the table. Coming mother. He bows slightly and withdraws, reappearing a few moments later in his place at the table. Honey, don't push with your fingers. If you have to push with something, the thing to push with is a crust of bread. And chew. Chew. Animals have secretions in their stomach which enable them to digest food without mastication, but human beings are supposed to chew their food before they swallow it down. Eat food leisurely, son, and really enjoy it. A well-cooked meal has lots of delicate flavors that have to be held in the mouth for appreciation. So chew your food and give your salivary glands a chance to function. Tom deliberately lays his imaginary fork down and his chair back from the table. I haven't enjoyed one bite of this dinner because of your constant directions on how to eat it. It's you that makes me rush through meals with your hawk-like attention to every bite I take, sickening, spoils my appetite. All this discussion of animal secretion, salivary grants, mastication. <sighs> Temperament like a metropolitan star. You're not excused from the table. I'm getting a cigarette. You smoke too much. I'll bring in the blank mouse. He remains no. standing with his cigarette by the portiers during the following. No, sister, no. You be the lady this time and I'll be the maid. I'm already up. Resume your seat, little sister. I want you to stay fresh and pretty for gentlemen callers. I'm not expecting any gentlemen callers. Well, sometimes they come when you least expect it. What? I remember one Sunday afternoon in Blue Mountain. I know what's coming. Uh, yes, but let her tell it. Again? She loves to tell it. Anda returns with a bowl of dessert. One Sunday afternoon in Blue Mountain, your mother received 17 gentlemen callers. Why, sometimes there weren't chairs enough to accommodate them all. We had to send in the maid to bring over and fold in chairs from the parish house. How did you, uh, entertain those gentlemen callers. I understood the art of conversation. Well, I bet you could talk. Girls in those days knew how to talk 
I can tell you. Yes. Image, Amanda as a girl on a porch greeting callers. They knew how to entertain gentlemen callers. It wasn't enough for a girl to be possessed of a pretty face or graceful figure, although I wasn't slighted in either respect. But she also needed to have a, a nimble wit and a tongue to meet all occasions. What did you talk about? Things of importance going on in the world, never anything coarse or common or vulgar. She addresses Tom as though he were seated in the vacant chair at the table, though he remains by portiers. He plays the scene as though he held the book. My callers were gentlemen, all. Among my callers were some of the most prominent young planters of the Mississippi Delta, planters and sons of planters. Tom motions for music and a spot of light on Amanda. Her eyes lift, her face glows, her voice becomes rich and and elegiac. Screen legend. We saw the neige. There was young chap Lachlan, who later became vice president of the Delta Planter Bank. Hadley Stevenson, who was drowned in Moon Lake and left his widow 150,000 in government bonds. There were Coochier brothers, Wesley and Bates. Bates was one of my bright particular bows. He got into a quarrel with that wild Wainwright boy. They shot it out on the floor of Moon Lake Casino. Bates was shot through the stomach, died in the ambulance on his way to Memphis. His widow was also well provided for, came into eight or 10,000 acres, that's all. She married him on the rebound, never loved her, carried my picture on him the night he died. And then there was that boy every girl in the Delta had set her cap for. That brilliant, brilliant young Fitzhugh boy from Greene County. What did he leave his widow? He never married. Gracious, you talk as though all my old admirers had turned their toes up to the daisies. This is the first you've mentioned that still survives? That Fitzhugh boy went north and made a fortune, came to be known as the Wolf of Wall Street. He had the Midas touch. Whatever he touched turned to gold. And I could have been Mrs. Duncan J. Fitzhugh, mind you, but I think it's your father. Mother, let me clear the table. No, dear, you go in front and study your typewriter chart or practice your shorthand a little. Stay fresh and pretty. It's almost time for our gentleman callers to start arriving. Lounces girlishly toward the kitchenette. How many do you suppose we're going to entertain this afternoon? Tom throws down the paper and jumps up with a groan. I, I don't believe we're going to receive any, Mother. What? Not one? You must be joking. Laura nervously echoes her laugh. She slips in a fugitive manner through the half-open portiers and draws them in gently behind her. A shaft of very clear light is thrown on her face against the faded tapestry of the curtains. Music, the glass menagerie, under faintly, lightly. Not one gentleman, Carla. It can't be true. There must be a flood. There must have been a tornado. It isn't a flood. It's not a tornado, Mother. I'm just not popular like you were in Blue Mountain. Tom utters another groan. Laura glances at him with a faint, apologetic smile, her voice catching a little. Mother's afraid I'm going to be an old maid. The scene dims out with glass menagerie. Music. Laura, haven't you ever liked some boy? On the dark stage, the scene is lighted with the image of blue roses. Gradually, Laura's figure becomes apparent and the screen goes out. The music subsides. 
Laura is seated in the delicate ivory chair at the small clawfoot table. She wears a dress of soft violet material for her kimono, her hair tied back from her forehead with a ribbon. She is washing and polishing her collection of glass. Amanda appears on the fire escape steps. At the sound of her ascent, Laura catches her breath, thrusts the bowl of ornaments away, and seats herself stiffly before the diagram of the typewriter keyboard, as though it held her spellbound. Something has happened to Amanda. It is written in her face as she climbs to the landing, a look that is grim and hopeless and a little absurd. She has on one of those cheap or imitation velvety looking cloth coats with imitation fur collar. Her hat is five or six years old, one of those dreadful cloche hats that were worn in the late twenties. And she is eloping an enormous black patent leather pocketbook with nickel clasps and initials. This is her full dress outfit, the one she usually wears to the DAR. Before entering, she looks through the door. She purses her lips, opens her eyes very wide, rolls them upward and shakes her head. Then she slowly lets herself in the door. Seeing her mother's expression, Laura touches her lips with a nervous gesture. Uh, hello, mother. I, I, I was just... She makes a nervous gesture toward the wall, the chart on the wall. Amanda leans against the shut door and stares at Laura with a martyred look. Deception? Deception. She slowly moves, removes her hat and gloves, continuing the sweet, suffering stare. She lets the hat and gloves fall on the floor, a bit of acting. Uh, how was the DAR meeting? Amanda slowly opens her purse and removes a dainty white handkerchief, which she shakes out delicately and delicately touches to her lips and nostrils. Uh, didn't you go to the DAR meeting, Mother? No. No. I did not have the strength to go to the DAR. In fact, I did not have the courage. I wanted to find a hole in the ground and hide myself in it forever. She crosses slowly to the wall and removes the diagram of the typewriter keyboard. She holds it in front of her for a second, staring at it sweetly and sorrowfully, then bites her lips and tears it into two pieces. Why did you do that, Mother? Amanda repeats the same procedure with the chart of the Greg alphabet. Why are you? Uh... Why? Why? How old are you, Laura? Mother, you know my age. I thought you were an adult. It seems that I was mistaken. She crosses slowly to the sofa and sinks down and stares at Laura. Please don't stare at me, mother. Amanda closes her eyes and lowers her head, counts to 10. What are we going to do? What is going to be? What is going to become of us? What is the future? Has something happened, mother? Amanda draws a long breath and takes out the handkerchief again, dabbing process. Mother, has something happened? I'll be all right in a minute. I'm just bewildered by life. Mother, I wish you would just tell me what happened. As you know, I was supposed to be inducted into my office at the DAR this afternoon. But image a swarm of typewriters. But I stopped off at Rubicam's business college to speak to your teachers about your having a cold and ask them what progress they thought you were making down there. 
Oh, I went to the tapping instructor and introduced myself as your mother. She didn't know who you were. Wingfield, she said. Well, we don't have any such student enrolled at the school. I assured her that she did and that you had just been going to, that you had been going to classes since early in January. I wonder, she said, if you could be talking about that terribly shy little girl who dropped out of school after only a few days attendance. No, I said, Laura, my daughter, has been going to school every day for the past six weeks. Excuse me, she said. She took the attendance book out and there was your name, unmistakably printed, and all the dates you were absent until they decided that you had dropped out of school. I still said, no, there must have been some mistake. There must have been some mix up in the records. And she said, no, I remember her perfectly now. Her hands shook so that she couldn't hit the right keys. The first time we gave a speed test, she broke down completely, was sick at the stomach and almost had to be carried off into the washroom. After that morning, she never showed up anymore. We phoned the house, but never got any answer. Well, I was working at the famous bar, I suppose, demonstrating those. Oh, I felt so weak I could barely keep on my feet. I had to sit down while they got me a glass of water. $50 tuition? All of our plans, my hopes and ambitions for you, just gone up the spout, just gone up the spout like that. Laura draws a long breath and gets awkwardly to her feet. She crosses to the Victrola and winds it out. What are you doing? Uh, I, I, I was... She releases the handle and returns to her seat. Laura... Where have you been going when you've gone on pretending that you were going to business college? I've just been going out walking. That's not true. It is. I just want walking. 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 In winter. Deliberately caught a pneumonia in that light coat. Where where did you walk to, Laura? All sorts of places. Mostly the park. Even after you'd started catching that cold? It was the lesser of two evils, Mother. Image, winter scene in park. I can go back up. I I threw up on the floor. From half past seven till after five every day. You mean to tell me you walked around in the park because you wanted to make me think that you were still going to Rubicam's business college? It it wasn't as bad as it sounds. I, I went inside places to get warmed up. Inside where? I went in the art museum and birdhouses at the zoo. I visited the penguins every day. Sometimes I did without lunch and went to the movies. Lately, I've been spending most of my afternoons in the jewel box, the big glass house where they raise the tropical flowers. And you did all this to deceive me, just for deception. Why? Mother... When you're disappointed, you get that awful suffering look in your face, like the picture of Jesus' mother in the museum. I couldn't face it. A whisper of strings. Legend, the crust of humility. Amanda hopelessly fingers the huge pocketbook. So what are we going to do the rest of our lives? Stay home and watch the parades go by? Amuse ourselves with the glass menagerie, darling eternally play those worn-out phonograph records your father left as a painful reminder of him. 
or we won't have a business career. We've given that up because it has given us nervous indigestion. (laughs) What is there left but dependency all of our lives? I know so well what becomes of unmarried women who aren't prepared to occupy a position. I've seen such pitiful cases in the South, barely tolerated spinsters living upon the grudge and patronage of sisters, husbands, and brothers' wives, stuck away in some little mousetrap of a room, encouraged by one in-law to visit the other. Little bird-like women without any nest, eating the crust of humility all their life. Is that the future we've mapped out for ourselves? I swear it's the only alternative I can think of. It isn't a very pleasant alternative, is it? Of course, some girls do marry. Laura twists her hands nervously. Haven't you ever liked some boy? Yes, I I liked one once. I came across his picture a while ago. He gave you his picture? Uh, No, it's in the yearbook. Oh, a high school boy. Screen image, Jim as high school hero bearing a silver cup. Yeah, yes, his name was Jim. Um, Here he is in the Pirates of Penzance. The what? The operetta, the senior class put on. He had a wonderful voice and we sat across the aisle from each other Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays in the odd. Here he is with a silver cup for debating. See his friend? He must have had a jolly disposition. He used to call me Blue Roses. (laughs) Why did he call you such a name as that? When I had that attack of pleurosis, he asked me what was the matter when I came back. I said pleurosis, and he thought I said Blue Roses. So that's what he always called me after that. Whenever he saw me, he'd holler, Hello, Blue Roses! I didn't care for the girl that he went out with. Emily Meisenbach. Emily was the best dressed girl at, girl at Solden, but she never struck me though as being sincere. It said in the personal section they're engaged. That was six years ago. They must be married by now. Girls that aren't cut out for business careers usually wind up married to some nice man. Sister, that's what we'll do. Laura utters a startled, doubtful laugh. She reaches quickly for a piece of glass. Mother. Yes? I'm, I'm crippled. Nonsense, Laura. I've told you never, never to use that word. Why, you're not crippled. You just have a little defect, hardly noticeable even. When people have some slight disadvantage like that, they cultivate other things to make up for it develop charm and vivacity and and charm oh that's what you'll have to do one thing your father had plenty of was charm tom motions to the fiddle in the wings the scene fades out with music legend on screen after the fiasco tom speaks from the fire escape landing after the fiasco at rubicom's business college the idea of getting a gentleman caller for Laura began to play a more and more important part in mother's calculations. It became an obsession, like some archetype of the universal unconscious. The image of the gentleman caller haunted our small apartment. 
image, young man at door with flowers. An evening at home rarely passed without some allusion to this image, this specter, this hope. Even when he wasn't mentioned, his, his presence hung in mother's preoccupied look and in my sister's frightened apologetic manner, hung like a sentence passed upon the wing fields. Mother was a woman of action, as well as words. She began to take the logical steps in the planned direction late that winter and in the early spring, realizing that extra money would be needed to properly feather the nest and plume the bird. She conducted a vigorous campaign on the telephone, roping in subscribers to one of those magazines for matrons called the Homemaker's Companion, the type of journal that features the serialized subliminations of ladies of letters who think in terms of delicate cup-like breasts, slim tapering waists, rich creamy thighs, eyes like wood smoke in autumn, fingers that soothe and caress like strains of music, bodies as powerful as a Truscan sculpture. Screen image, Glamour magazine cover. Amanda enters with phone on extension cord. She is spotted in the dim state. Ada Scott, this is Amanda Wingfield. We missed you at the DAR on Monday. I said to myself, she's probably suffering with that sinus condition. How is that sinus condition? Horrors. Heaven have mercy. What, you're a Christian martyr? Yes, that's what you are, a Christian martyr. (laughs) Well, I just happen to have I just happened to notice that your subscription to the companion's about to expire. Yes, it expires within the next issue, honey. Well, just when that wonderful new serial by Bessie May Harper is getting off to such an exciting start. Oh, honey, it's something that you can't miss. You remember how Gone with the Wind took everyone by storm? Well, you simply couldn't go out if you hadn't read it. All everybody talked about was Scarlett O'Hara. Well, this is... It's a book that critics are already comparing to Gone with the Wind. It's the Gone with the Wind of the post-World War generation. What? Burning? Oh, honey, don't let them burn. Go go take a look at the oven and and I'll hold the wire. Heavens, I think she's hung up. Dim out. Before the stage is lighted, the violent voices of Tom and Amanda are heard. They are quarreling behind the portieres. In front of them stands Laura with clenched hands and panicky expression, a clear pool of light on her figure throughout the scene. What in Christ's name am oh, you that supposed to do? Expression, not in my presence. Oh. Have you gone out of your senses? I have, that's true. Driven out. What is the matter with you, you big, big idiot? Look, I've got no thing, no single thing. Lower your voice. In my life here that I can call my own. Everything is... Stop that shouting. Yesterday, you confiscated my books. You had the nerve. I took that horrible novel back to the library. Yes, that hideous book by that insane Mr. Lawrence. I cannot control the output of diseased minds or the people who cater to them. I will not allow such filth brought into my house. No, 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 no. House! house who pays rent on it who makes a slave of himself to don't you dare to no no i mustn't say things i've just got to let me tell you now i don't want to hear any more he tears the portiers open the upstage area is lit with a turgid smoky red glow amanda's hair is in metal curlers and she wears a very old bathrobe much too large for her slight figure a relic of the faithless mr wingfield an upright typewriter and a wild disarray of manuscripts are on the drop leaf table. The quarrel was probably precipitated by his creative labor 
a, a chair lying overthrown on the floor. Their gesticulating shadows are cast on the ceiling by the fiery glow. You will hear more. You no, I won't hear more. I'm going out. You come right back in. Out. 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 Because I'm... Come back here, Tong Wingfield. I am not through talking to you. Oh, go. Tong. Oh. That's Laura. Tom. You are going to listen and no more insolence from you. I am at the end of my patience. What do you think I'm at? Aren't I supposed to have any patience to reach the end of, Mother? I know, I know, I know. It seems unimportant to you what I'm doing. What I want to do, having a little difference between them. You don't think that... I think that you've been doing things that you're ashamed of. That's why you act like this. I don't believe that you go every night to the movies. Nobody goes to the movies night after night. Nobody in their right mind goes to movies as often as you pretend to. People don't go to the movies at nearly midnight, and movies don't let out at 2 a.m. Coming, stumbling, muttering to yourself like a maniac. You get three hours sleep, and then you go to work. Oh, I can picture the way you're doing down there, moping, doping, because you're in no condition. Oh, I'm in no condition. What right have you got to jeopardize your job, jeopardize the security of all of us? How do you think we'd manage if you were- Listen! You think I'm crazy about the warehouse? You think I'm in love with continental shoemakers? You think I want to spend 55 years down there in that clear tox interior with fluorescent tubes? Look, I'd rather somebody picked up a crowbar and battered my, my brains than go back mornings. I go every time you come in yelling. That goddamn rise and shine, rise and shine. I say to myself, how lucky dead people are. But I get up, I go for $65 a month. I give up all that I dream of doing and being ever. And you say self. Self's all I ever think of. Well, listen. If self is what I thought of, mother, I'd be where he is. Gone. As far as the system of transportation reaches. Don't grab at me, mother. Where are you going? I'm going to the movies. I don't believe that lie. I'm going to opium dens. Yes, opium dens. Dens of vice and criminals hangouts. Mother, I've joined the Hogan gang. I've, I'm a hired assassin. I carry a Tommy gun. In a violin case, I run a string of cat houses in the valley. They call me Killer, Killer Wingfield. I'm leading a double life, a, a simple, honest warehouse worker by day, by night a dynamic, solve the underworld, mother. I go to the gambling casinos. I spin away fortunes on the roulette table. I wear a patch over one eye and a false mustache. Sometimes I put on green whiskers. <laughs> On those occasions, they call me El Diablo. <laughs> oh, I could tell you things to make you sleepless. My enemies plan to dynamite this place. 
They're going to blow us all sky high from that. I'm, I'm glad. Very happy. And so are you. You'll go up, up on a broomstick over Blue Mountain with 17 gentlemen callers. You ugly, babbling old witch. He goes through a series of violent, clumsy movements, seizing his overcoat, lunging to, do, lunging to the door, pulling it fiercely open. The women watch him aghast. His arm catches in the sleeve of the coat as he struggles to put it on. For a moment, he is pinioned by the bulky garment. With an outraged groan, he tears the coat off again, splitting the shoulder of it, and hurls it across the room. It strikes against the shelf of Laura's glass collection. There is a tinkle of shattering glass. Laura cries out as if wounded. Yes, menagerie. She covers her face and turns away. But Amanda is still stunned and stupefied by the ugly witch so that she barely notices this occurrence. Now she recovers her speech. I won't speak to you until you apologize. She crosses through portiers and draws them together behind her. Tom is left with Laura. Laura clings weakly to the mantle with her face averted. Tom stares at her stupidly for a moment. Then he crosses to shelf, drops awkwardly on his knees to collect the fallen glass, glancing at Laura as if he would speak but couldn't. The glass menagerie steals in as the scene dims out. The interior is dark, faint light in the alley. A deep voice bell in a church is tolling the hour of five as the scene commences. Tom appears at the top of the alley. After each solemn boom of the bell in the tower, he shakes a little noisemaker or rattle as if to express the tiny spasm of man in contrast to the sustained power and dignity of the Almighty. This and the unsteadiness of his advance make it evident that he has been drinking. As he climbs a few steps to the fire escape landing, light steals up inside. Laura appears in a nightdress, observing Tom's empty bed in the front room. Tom fitches in his pockets for door key, removing a motley assortment of articles in the search, including a perfect shower of movie ticket stubs and an empty bottle. At last, he finds the key, but just as he is about to insert it, it slips from his fingers. He strikes a match and crouches below the door. One crack in it. Through. Laura opens the door. Tom? Tom, what are you doing? Looking for a door key. Where have you been all this time? I have been to the movies. All this time at the movies? There was a very long program. There was a Garbo picture of Mickey Mouse and a travelogue and a newsreel and the preview of coming attractions. And there was an organ solo, a collection for the milk bun simultaneously which ended up in a terrible fight between a fat lady and a usher. Did you have to stay through everything? Of course. Uh, oh, oh, and oh, I forgot. There was a big stage show. The headliner on this stage show was Malvolio, the mag magician. He performed wonderful tricks, many of them, such a, uh, as pouring water back and forth between pictures. But first, it turned to wine, and then it turned to beer, and then it turned to whiskey. I know it was whiskey if Alan turned into because he, he needed somebody to come up to the audience to help him. And I came up, both shows. And it was Kentucky Straight Bourbon. A very generous fellow. He gave souvenirs. <laughs> he pulls from his back pocket a shimmering rainbow scarf. Yeah, he gave me this. This is his magic scarf. You can have it, Laura. Yeah. You wave it over a canary cage and you get a bowl of goldfish. You wave it over a goldfish bowl and 
they fly away canaries. But, but, but the wonderfulest trick of all was the coffin trick. We nailed him into a coffin and he got out of the coffin without removing one nail. There is a trick that would come in handy for me. You know, get me out of this <laughs> two by four situation. He flops onto a bed and starts removing shoes. Tom, shh. What are you shushing me for? You wake up mother. Goody, goody. Pay her back for all those rise and shots. Yeah. Mm. You know, it, it, it don't take much intelligence to get yourself into a nailed up coffin, Lord. <clears throat> Who in hell ever got himself out of one without moving one nail? As if in answer, the father's grinning photograph lights up. Scene dims out. The church bell is heard striking six. At the sixth stroke, the alarm clock goes off in Amanda's room, and after a few moments, we hear her calling, rise and shine, rise and shine. Laura, go tell your brother to rise and shine. Tom sits up slowly. I'll rise, but I won't shine. The light increases. Laura? Tell your brother his coffee is ready. Laura slips into the front room. Um, it's nearly seven. Don't make mother nervous. Uh, Tom, speak to mother this morning. Make up with her. Apologize. Speak to her. She won't to me. It's her that started the not speaking. If you just say you're sorry, she'll start speaking. Her not speaking, is that such a tragedy? Please, please. Amanda calls from the kitchenette. Laura, are you going to do what I asked you to do or do I have to get dressed and go out myself? Go in, go in as soon as I get my coat. She pulls on a shapeless felt hat with nervous jerky movements, pleadingly glancing at Tom, rushes awkwardly for her coat. The coat is one of Amanda's, inaccurately made overs, the sleeves too short for Laura. Butter? And what else? Just butter. Tell them to charge it. They make such faces when I do the hat. Sticks and stones can break our bones, but the expression on Mr. Garfinkel's face won't harm us. Tell, tell, your, <clears throat> tell your brother his coffee is getting cold. Do what I asked you, will you? Will you, Tom? Laura, go now or just don't go at all. Uh, go in. Go in. A second letter, she cries out. Tom springs up and crosses to the door. Uh, Amanda rushes anxiously in. Tom opens uh, the door. Laura! I'm all right. I slip, but I'm all right. If anyone breaks a leg on those fire escape steps, the landlord ought to be sued for every cent he possesses. She shuts door, remembers she isn't speaking, and returns to other room. As Tom enters listlessly for his coffee, she turns her back to him and stands rigidly facing the window on the gloomy gray vault of the areaway. Its light on her face, with its aged but childish features, is cruelly sharp, satirical as a Daumier print. Tom glances sheepishly but sullenly at her averted figure and slumps at the table. The coffee is scalding hot. He sips it and gasps and spits it back into the cup. At his gasp, Amanda crouches her breath and half turns, then catches herself and turns back to window. Tom blows on his coffee, glancing sideways at his mother. She clears her throat. 
Tom clears his, he starts to rise, sinks back down again, scratches his head, clears his throat again. Amanda coughs. Tom raises his cup in both hands to blow on it, his eyes staring over the rim of it at his mother for several moments. Then he slowly sets the cup down and awkwardly and hesitantly rises from the chair. Mother, I apologize, mother. Amanda draws a quick, shuddering breath. Her face works grotesquely. She breaks into childlike tears. I'm sorry for what I said. For everything that I said, I didn't mean it. <laughs> My devotion has made me a witch. And so I make myself hateful to my children. No, you don't. I worry so much. Don't sleep. It makes me nervous. I understand that. I've had to put up a solidarity battle all these years. But you're my right hand bower. Don't fall down. Don't fail. I try, mother. Try and you will succeed. Why? You're just full of natural endowments. Both my children, they're, they're unusual children. Don't you think I know it? I'm so proud, happy, feel I've so much to be thankful for. But, but promise me one thing, son. What, mother? Promise, son, that you'll never be a drunkard. I will never be a drunken mother. That's what's frightened me so, that you'd been drinking. Eat a bowl of Purina. Just coffee, mother. A shredded wheat biscuit? No, no, mother, just coffee. Oh, you can't put in a day's work on an empty stomach. You've got 10 minutes. Don't gulp. Drinking too hot liquids makes cancer of the stomach. Put cream in. No, thank you. To cool it. No, no, thank you. I want a black. I know, but it's not good for you. We, we have to do all we can to build ourselves up in these trying times we live in. All that we have to cling to is each other. That's why it's so important, Tom. I sent your sister out so I could discuss something with you. If you hadn't spoken to me, I would have spoken to you. What is it, mother, that you want to discuss? Laura. Tom puts his cup down slowly. Music, the glass menagerie. Oh. Laura. You know how Laura is. So quiet, but, but still water runs deep. She notices things and she broods about them. A few days ago, I came in and she was crying. What about? You. Me. She has an idea that you're not happy here. What gave her that idea? What gives her any idea? However, you do act strangely. I'm not criticizing. I understand that. I know your ambitions do not lie in warehouses. That like everybody in the whole wide world, you had to make sacrifices. But Tom... Tom, life's not easy. It calls for Spartan endurance. There's so many things in my heart that I cannot describe to you. I never told you, but I loved your father. I know that, mother. 
and you when I see you taking after his ways, staying out late. Well, you had been thinking that night that you were in that terrifying condition. Laura says that you hate the apartment and that you go out nights to get away from it. Is that true, Tom? No. You say there's so much in your heart that you can't describe to me. Well, that's true of me, too. There's so much in my heart that I can't describe to you. So let's respect each other's... Uh... Why? Why, Tom, are you always so restless? Where do you go to now? Go to the movies. Why do you go to the movies so much, Tom? I go to the movies because I like adventure. Adventure is something I don't have much of at work, so I go to the movies. But, Tom, you go to the movies entirely too much. Yeah, I like a lot of adventure. Panda looks baffled, then hurt. As the familiar inquisition resumes, he becomes hard and impatient again. Amanda slips back into her coreless attitude towards him. Most young men find adventure in their careers. Well, most young men are not employed in the warehouse. The world is full of young men employed in warehouses and offices and factories. Do all of them find adventure in their careers? They do, or they do without it. Not everybody has a craze for adventure. Man is by instinct, a lover, a hunter, a fighter, and none of those instincts are given much play at the warehouse. Man is by instinct. Don't quote instinct to me. Instinct is something that people have got away from. It belongs to animals. Christian adults don't want it. What do Christian adults then want then, mother? Superior things. Things of the mind and the spirit. Only animals have to satisfy instincts. Surely your aims are somewhat higher than theirs, than monkeys, pigs. I reckon they're not. You're joking. However, that isn't what I wanted to discuss. I haven't much time. Sit down. You want me to punch in red at the warehouse, Mother? You have five minutes. I want to talk about Laura. All right. What about Laura? We have to be making some plans and provisions for her. She's older than you, two years, and nothing has happened. She just drifts along, doing nothing. It frightens me terribly how she just drifts along. Well, I guess she's a type that people call homegirls. There's no such type, and if there is, it's a pity. That is, unless the home is hers with a husband. What? Oh, I can see the handwriting on the walls, plain as I see the nose in front of my face. It's terrifying. More and more, you remind me of your father. He was out at all hours without explanation and then left. Goodbye. And me with a bag to hold. I saw that letter you got from the Merchant Marine. I know what you're dreaming of, and I'm not standing here blindfolded. Very well, then. Do it, but not till there's somebody to take your place. What do you mean? I mean that as soon as Laura has got somebody to take care of her, married, in a home of her own, independent, uh, then you'll be free to go wherever you please, on land, on sea, whichever way the wind blows you. But until that time, you've got to look out for your sister. I don't say me because I'm old and I don't matter. I say for your sister because she's young, independent. I put her in business college, dismal failure. Frightened her so much it made her sick to the stomach. 
I took her over to the Young People's League at the church. Another fiasco. She spoke to nobody. Nobody spoke to her. Now, all she does is fool with those pieces of glass and, and play those worn out records. What kind of life is that for a girl to lead? What can I do about it? Overcome selfishness. Self, self, self is all you ever think of. Tom springs up and crosses to get his coat. It is ugly and bulky. He pulls on a cap with earmuffs. Where's your muffler? Put on your wool muffler. He snatches it angrily from the closet and tosses it around his neck and pulls both ends tight. Tom, I haven't said what I had in mind to ask you. I'm too late to... Down at the warehouse. Aren't there some nice young men? No. There must be some. Mother. Find one that's clean living, doesn't drink, and ask him out for your sister. What? The sister. To me. Get acquainted. Oh, my God. Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you, dear? Yes. Amanda closes the door hesitantly and with a troubled but faintly hopeful expression. Spot Amanda at the phone. Ella Cartwright, this is Amanda Wingfield. How are you, honey? How's that kidney condition? <gasps> Horrors. You're a Christian martyr. Yes, honey, that's what you are, a Christian martyr. Well, I just now happen to notice in my little red book that your subscription to the Companion has just run out. I knew that you wouldn't want to miss out on that wonderful serial starting in this issue. It's by Bessie May Harper, the first thing she's written since Honeymoon for three. Wasn't that a strange and interesting story? Well, this one is even lovelier, I believe. It has a sophisticated society background. It's all about the horses set on Long Island. Fade out. It is early dusk on a spring evening. Supper has just been finished in the Wingfield apartment. Amanda and Laura in light-colored dresses are removing dishes from the table in the upstage area, which is shadowy. Their movements formalized almost as a dance or ritual, their moving forms as pale and silent as moths. Tom, in white shirt and trousers, rises from the table and crosses toward the fire escape. Son, will you do me a favor? What? Comb your hair. You look so pretty when your hair is combed. There is only one respect in which I would like you to emulate your father. What respect is that? The care he always took of his appearance. He never allowed himself to look untidy. Where are you going? I'm going out to smoke. You smoke too much. Pack a day at 50 cents a pack. How, how much would that amount to in a month? 30 times 15 is, is how much, Tom? Figure it out and you will be astounded at what you could save. Enough to give you a night school course and accountant at Washington U. Just think what a wonderful thing that would be for you, son. I'd rather smoke. He steps out onto the landing, letting the screen door slam. I know, that's the tragedy of it. Alone, she turns to look at her husband's picture. Across the alley from us was the Paradise Dance Hall. On evenings in the spring, the windows and doors were open and the music came outdoors. Sometimes the lights were turned out except for a large glass sphere that hung from the ceiling. It would turn slowly about and filter the dusk with delicate rainbow colors. 
Then the orchestra played a waltz or a, a tango, something that had a slow, sensuous rhythm. Couples would come outside to the relative privacy of the alley. You could see them kissing behind ash pits and telegraph poles. This was a compensation for lives that passed like mine without any change or adventure. Adventure and change were imminent in this year. They were waiting around the corner for all these kids, suspended in the midst over Brigginscotton, caught in the folds of Chamberlain's umbrella. In Spain, there was Guernica. But here, there was only hot swing music, liquor, dance halls, band, movies, and sex that hung the gloom like a chandelier and flooded the world with brief, deceptive rainbows. All the world was waiting for bombardments. Amanda turns front and comes outside. Oh, Firescape Landon's a poor excuse for a porch. She spreads a newspaper on a step and sits down gracefully and demurely as if she were settling into a swing on a Mississippi veranda. What are you looking at? The moon. Is there a moon this evening? It's rising over Garfinkel's delicatessen. So it is, a little silver slipper of a moon. Have you made a wish on it yet? Uh-huh. What did you wish for? That's a secret. A secret, huh? Well, I won't tell you mine either. I will be just as mysterious as you. <laughs> I bet I can guess what yours is. Is my head so transparent? You're not a sphinx. No, I don't have secrets. I'll tell you what I wished for on the moon. Success and happiness for my precious children. I wish for that whenever there's a moon. And when there isn't a moon, I wish for it too. I thought perhaps you wished for a gentleman caller. And why would you say that? Don't you remember asking me to fetch one? I remember suggesting that it would be nice for your sister if you brought home some nice young man from the warehouse. I think that I've made that suggestion more than once. Yes, you have made it repeatedly. Well? Well, we are going to have one. What? A gentleman caller. The Annunciation is celebrated with music. Amanda rises. Image on screen, caller with bouquet. <clears throat> you mean... You have asked some nice young man to come over? Yeah, I've asked him to dinner. You, you really did? I did. You did, and he accepted? He did. Well, 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 that's lovely. I thought that you would be pleased. It's a definite, then. Very definite. Soon? Very soon. For heaven's sake, stop putting me on and tell me some things, will you? What things do you want me to tell you? Naturally, I would like to know when he's coming. He's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow. But, Tom! Yes, ma'am. Tomorrow gives me no time. Oh, I... For preparations. Why didn't you phone me at once? 
as soon as you asked him, the minute he accepted, then, then don't you see, I could have been getting ready. You don't have to make any fuss. Oh, Tom, 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 of course I have to make a fuss. I want things nice, not sloppy, not thrown together. I, I certainly have to do some fast thinking, won't I? <laughs> Why you have to think at all? You just don't know. We can't have a gentleman collar and a pigsty. All my wedding silver has to be polished. The monogram table linen ought to be laundered. The windows have to be washed. The fresh curtains put up. And, and how about clothes? We have to wear something, don't we? Mother, this, is bo- this boy is no one to make a fuss over. Do you realize he is the first young man we've introduced to your sister? It's terrible. Dreadful disgraceful that poor little sister has never ever received a single gentleman caller but tom come inside what for i want to ask you some things if you're gonna make it such a fuss i'll call it off i'll tell him not to come you certainly won't do anything of the kind nothing offends people worse than broken engagement it simply means i'll have to work like a turk won't be brilliant but we will pass inspection now come inside sit down Any particular place you would like me to sit? Thanks heavens I got a new sofa. I'm also making payments on the floor lamp I've sent out and and put the chintz covers on. They'll brighten things up. Of course, I'd hope to have these walls repapered, but what is that young man's name? His name is O'Connor. That, of course, means fish. Tomorrow's Friday. I'll have the salmon loaf with Durkey's dressing. Well, what does he do? He works the warehouse? Of course. How else would I? Tom, he doesn't drink. Why do you ask me that? Your father did. Don't get started on that. He does drink then. Not that I know of. Make sure. Be certain. The last thing I want for my daughter is a boy who drinks. Aren't you being a little bit premature? Mr. O'Connor has yet, has not yet appeared on the scene. But we'll tomorrow to meet your sister. And what do I know about his character? Nothing. Old maids are better off than wives of drunkards. Oh, my God. Be still. Lots of fellows meet girls whom they don't marry. Oh, talk so sensibly, Tom. And don't be sarcastic. She's gotten the hairbrush. What are you doing? I'm brushing down that cowlick. What's the man's position at the warehouse? This young man's position is that of a shipping clerk, Mother. That seems to me like a fairly responsible job, the sort of job you would be in if you just had you would be in if you just had more get up. What's his salary? Have you any idea? I would judge it to be approximately eighty-five dollars a month. Well, not princely, but. 20 more than I make. Yes, how well I know. But for a family man, $85 a month is not much more than you can get bound. Yes, but Mr. O'Connor is not a family man. Well, he might be, mightn't he, sometime in the future? I, I see. Plans and provisions. You are the only young man that I know who ignores the fact that the future becomes the present. The present, the past, and the past turns into everlasting regret if you don't plan for it. I will think that over and see what I can make of it. Don't be supercilious with your mother. Tell me some more about this. What do you call him? James D. O'Connor. The D is for Delaney. Irish on both sides. Gracious, and he doesn't drink? Shall I call him up and ask him right this minute? 
The only way to find out about those things is to make discreet inquiries at the proper moment. But when I was a girl in Blue Mountain and it was suspected that a young man drank, the girl whose intentions he had been receiving, if any girl was, would sometimes speak to the minister of his church or rather her father would if her father was living and, and, and sort of get a feel out for the man's character. That is, if uh, that is the way such things are discreetly handled to keep a young woman from making a tragic mistake. Well, then how did you happen to make a tragic mistake? That innocent look on your father had everyone fooled. He smiled and the world was enchanted. No girl can do worse than put herself at the mercy of a handsome appearance. I hope that Mr. O'Connor is not too good looking. No, he's not too good looking. He's covered with freckles and hasn't too much of now. He's not downright homely, though. Not down right not right down homely just medium homely i'd say a character is what to look for in a man that's what i've always said mother you've never said anything of a kind and i suspect you would never give it a thought don't be so suspicious of me at least i hope he's the type that's up and coming i think he really goes in for you self-improvement what reason have you to think so he goes to night school Splendid. What does he do? I mean, study. Radio engineering and public speaking. Then he has visions of being advanced in the world. Any young man who studies public speaking is aiming to have an executive job someday. And radio engineering, a thing for the future. Both of these facts are very illuminating. Those are the sort of things that a mother should know concerning any young man who comes to call on her daughter, seriously or not. One little warning. Uh, he doesn't know about Laura. I didn't let on that we had dark ulterior motives. I just said, oh, why don't you come and have dinner with us? He said, okay. And that was the whole conversation. I bet it was. You're eloquent as an oyster. However, he'll know about Laura when he gets her. When he sees how lovely and sweet and pretty she is, he'll thank his lucky stars he was asked for dinner. Mother, you mustn't expect too much of Laura. What do you mean? Laura seems all those things to you and me because she's ours and we love her. We don't even notice she's crippled anymore. Don't say crippled. You know I never allow that word to be used. But face facts, Mother. She is, and that's not all. What do you mean, not all? Laura is very different from other girls. I think the difference is all to her advantage. Not quite all. In the eyes of, uh, of others, strangers, she's terribly shy and lives in a world of, of her own. And, and those things make her seem a little peculiar to people outside the house. Don't say peculiar. Face the facts. She is. Dance hall music changes to a tango that has a minor and somewhat ominous tone. In what way is she peculiar, may I ask? She lives in a world of her own. A world of little glass ornaments, mother. Uh, She plays old old phonograph records and... uh, That's about all.
He glances at himself in the mirror and crosses to the door. Where are you going? I'm going to the movies. Not to the movies. Every night to the movies. I don't believe you always go to the movies. Gone. Amanda looks worriedly after him for a moment. Then vitality and optimism return and she returns from the door, crossing to Portier's. Laura. 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 Laura answers from kitchenette. Yes, mother? Let those dishes go and come in front. Laura, come here and make a wish on the moon. Moon? Moon? A little silver slipper of a moon. Look over your left shoulder and make a wish. Laura looks faintly puzzled as if called out of sleep. Amanda seizes her shoulders and turns her at an angle by the door. Now, now, darling, wish. What shall I wish for, mother? Happiness. Good fortune. The violin rises and the stage dims out. Curtain. And so, the following evening, I brought Jim home to dinner. I had known Jim slightly in high school. In high school, Jim was a hero. He had tremendous Irish good nature and vitality with the scrubbed and polished look of white china wear. He seemed to move in a continual spotlight. He was a star in basketball, captain of the debating club, president of the senior class and the glee club, and he sang the male lead in the annual light operas. He was always running or bounding, never just walking. He seemed always at the point of defeating the law of gravity. He was shooting with such velocity through his adolescence that you would logically expect him to arrive at nothing short of the White House by the time he was 30. But Jim apparently ran into more interference after his graduation from Sudan. His speed had definitely slowed. Six years and after he left high school, he was holding a job that wasn't much better than mine. He was the only one at the warehouse with whom I was on friendly terms. I was valuable to him as someone who could remember his former glory, who had seen him win basketball games and the silver cup and debated. He knew of my secret practice of retiring to a cabinet of the washroom to work on poems when business was slack. And was slack in the warehouse. He called me Shakespeare. And while the other boys in the warehouse regarded me with suspicious hostility, Jim took a, a humorous attitude toward me. Gradually, his attitude affected the others. Their hostility wore off, and they also began to smile at me as people smile at an oddly-fashioned dog who trots across their path at some distance. I knew that Jim and Laura had known each other at Sudan, and I heard, had heard Laura speak uh, admiringly of his voice. I didn't know if Jim remembered her or not. In high school, Laura had been as unobtrusive as Jim had been astonishing. If he did remember Laura, it was not as my sister, for when I asked him to dinner, he grinned and said, You know, Shakespeare, I never thought of you as having folks. Well, he was about to discover I did. Light up stage. Friday evening. It is about five o'clock of a late spring evening, which comes scattering poems in the sky. A delicate, lemony night is the Wingfield apartment. Amanda has worked like a Turk in preparation for the gentleman caller. The results are astonishing. The new floor lamp with its rose silk shade is in place, 
A colored paper lantern conceals the broken light fixture in the ceiling. New billowing white curtains are out the windows. Chintz covers are on chairs and sofa. A pair of new sofa pillows makes their initial appearance. Open boxes and tissue paper are scattered on the floor. Laura stands in the middle with lifted arms while Amanda crouches before her, adjusting the hem of her new dress, devote and ritualistic. The dress is colored and designed by memory. The arrangement of Laura's hair is unchanged. It is softer and more becoming. A fragile, unearthly prettiness has come out of Laura. She is like a piece of translucent glass, touched by light, given a momentary radiance, not actual, not lasting. Why are you trembling? Mother, you made me so nervous. Well, how have I made you nervous? About all this fuss. You make it seem so important. I don't understand you, Laura. You couldn't be satisfied with just sitting home, and, and yet whenever I try to arrange something for you, you seem to resist it. Now take a look at yourself. Uh, no, wait. Wait just a moment. I, I have an idea. What, what is it now? Amanda produces two powder puffs, which she wraps in handkerchiefs and stuffs in Laura's bosom. Mother, what, what are you doing? They call them gay deceivers. I won't wear them. You will. Why should I? Because, to be painfully honest, your chest is flat. You make it seem like we were setting a trap. All pretty girls are a trap, a pretty trap, and men expect them to be. Now look at yourself, young lady. This is the prettiest you will ever be. I, I've got to fix myself now. You're going to be surprised by your mother's appearance. She crosses the courtiers, humming gaily. Laura moves slowly to the long mirror and stares solemnly at herself. A wind blows the white curtains inward in a slow, graceful motion and with a faint, sorrowful sighing. It isn't dark enough yet. Laura turns slowly before the mirror with a troubled look. <laughs> I'm going to show you something. I'm going to make a spectacular appearance. Uh, what is it, Mother? Possess your soul in patience, you will see. Something I've resurrected from that old trunk. Styles haven't changed so terribly much after all. She parts the portiers. Now just look at your mother. She wears a girlish frock of yellowed wool with blue silk sash. She carries a bunch of Jean Quilles. The legend of her youth is nearly revived. This is the dress in which I led the cotillion, won the cakewalk twice at Sunset Hill, wore one spring to the governor's ball in Jackson. See how I sashayed around the ballroom, Laura? She raises her skirt and does a mincing step around the room. I wore it on Sundays for my gentleman callers. I had it on the day I met your father. I had malaria fever all that spring. Changing the climate from East Tennessee to the Delta weakened resistance. I had a little temperature all the time, not enough to be serious, just enough to make me restless and giddy. I had invitations pouring in, parties all over the Delta. Stay in bed, Mother said. You have a fever, but 
I just wouldn't. I took quinine, but kept on going, going, evening dances, afternoons, long, long rides, picnics, lovely. So lovely that country in May, all lacy with dogwood, literally flooded with jonquils. And that was the last spring I had a craze for jonquils. Jonquils became an absolute assertion. Mother said, Honey, there's no more room for jonquils. And I kept bringing in more jonquils. Whenever I saw them, I'd say, stop, stop, I see jonquils. I made the young men help me gather the jonquils. It was a joke. Amanda and her jonquils. <laughs> well, finally, there were no more vases to hold them. Every available space was filled with jonquils. No vases to hold them? All right, I'll hold them myself. And then I... She stopped Let in front your father, of the picture. Malaria, fever, and jonquils, and then this boy. She switches on the rose-covered lamp. <sighs> I hope they get here before it starts to rain. She crosses upstage and places the jonquils in bowl on table. I gave your brother a little extra change so he and Mr. O'Connor could take the service car home. What did you say his name was? O'Connor. What is his first name? I don't remember. Oh, uh, yes, I do. It was Jim. Laura sways slightly and catches hold of a chair. Not Jim. Oh, yes, it was. It was Jim. I've never known Jim. That wasn't nice, though. <laughs> are, you, are you sure his name is Jim O'Connor? Yes, why? Is he the one Tom used to know in high school? He didn't say so. I think he just said he knew him at the warehouse. There was a Jim O'Connor we both knew in high school. If that is the one that Tom's bringing to dinner, you'll have to excuse me, I won't come to the table. What sort of nonsense is this? You asked me once if I'd ever liked a boy. Don't you remember I showed you his picture? Oh, you mean the boy you showed me in the yearbook? Yes, that boy. Laura? Laura, were you in love with that boy? I don't know, Mother. All I know is I couldn't sit at the table if it was him. It won't be him. It isn't the least bit likely. But whether it is or not, you will come to the table. You will not be excused. I'll have to be, Mother. I don't intend to humor your silliness, Laura. I've had too much from you and your brother both. Just sit down and compose yourself till they come. Tom has forgotten his keys, so you'll have to let them in when they arrive. Mother, you answer the door. I'll be in the kitchen, busy. Mother, please answer the door. Don't make me do it. I've got to fix the dressing for the salmon. Fuss, fuss, silliness over a gentleman caller. Door swings shut. Laura's left alone. She utters a low moan and turns off the lamp, sits stiffly on the edge of the sofa, nodding her fingers together. Tom and Jim appear on the fire escape steps and climb to landing. Hearing their approach, Laura rises with a panicky gesture. She retreats to the portiers. The doorbell, Laura catches her breath and touches her throat. Low drums. Laura, sweetheart. The door. Laura stares at it without moving. I think we just beat the rain. Huh? 
again nervously. Jim whistles and fishes for a cigarette. Laura, that is your brother and Mr. O'Connor. Will you let them in, darling? Laura crosses the board, kitchenette door. Mother, you go to the door. Amanda steps out of kitchenette and stares furiously at Laura. She points imperiously at the door. Please, please. What is the matter with you, you silly thin? No, please, you answer it, please. I told you I wasn't going to humor you, Laura. Why have you chosen this moment to lose your mind? Please, 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 you go. You'll have to go to the door because I can't. I can't either. Why? I'm sick. I'm sick too of your nonsense. Why can't you and your brother be normal people? Fantastic whims and behavior. Tom gives a long ring. Preposterous going-ons. Can you give me one reason? Uh, Come in just one second. Why, you should be afraid to open a door? Now answer it, Laura. Laura Wingfield, you march right to that door. A faraway, scratchy rendition of Dardanella softens the air. Yes, mother. And gives her strength to move through it. She slips to the door and draws it cautiously open. Tom enters with the caller, Jim O'Connor. Laura, this is Jim. Jim, this is my uh, sister, Laura. I didn't know that Shakespeare had a sister. How, how do you do? Okay. Touches it hesitantly with hers. Your, your hand's cold, Laura. I, yes, well, I, I, I've been playing the Victrola. Must have been playing classical music on it. You ought to play a little hot swing music to warm you up. Uh, excuse me, I haven't finished playing the Victrola. Turns awkwardly and hurries into the front room. She pauses a second by the Victrola, then catches her breath and darts through the portiers like a frightened deer. What was the matter? Oh, oh, Laura. Uh, Laura is uh, terribly shy. Shy, huh? It's unusual to meet a shy girl nowadays. I, I don't believe you ever mentioned you had a sister. Well, now you know. I have one. Here is the, uh, the post-dispatch. You want a piece of it? Uh-huh. Uh, what piece? Comics? Sports. Mm. Oh, dizzy Dean on his bad behavior? Yeah. Lights a cigarette and crosses back to the fire escape door. Where are you going? Uh, I'm going out on the terrace. Jim goes after him. You know, Shakespeare, I'm going to sell you a bit of goods. What goods? Of course I'm taking. Huh? In public speaking, you and me, we're not the warehouse type. Thanks. That's, that's good news. But, but what has uh, public speaking got to do with it? It fits you for executive positions. Mm. I tell uh, you it's done a hell of a lot for me. In, in what respect? In every... Ask yourself, what is the difference between you and me and, and men in the office down front? Brains? No. Ability? No. Then, then what? Just one little thing. What is that one little thing? Primarily, it amounts to social poise. Being able to square up to people and hold your own on any social level. Um. Yes, mother? Is that you and Mr. O'Connor? 
Well, you just make yourself comfortable in there. Yes, Mother. Ask Mr. O'Connor if he would like to wash his hands. Oh, no. No, thank you. I, I took care of that at the warehouse. Tom? Yes? Mr. Mendoza was speaking to me about you. Uh, favorably? What do you think? Well, you're going to be out of a job if you don't wake up. I am waking up. You show no signs. Well, the signs are interior. Image on screen, the sailing vessel with Jolly Roger again. I'm planning to change. He leans over the rail, speaking with quiet acceleration. The incandescent marquee is the signs of the first run movie house's lightest face from across the alley. He looks like a voyager. I'm right at the point of, of committing myself to a future that doesn't include the warehouse and Mr. Mendoza or, or even a night school course in public speaking. What are you guessing about? I'm tired of the movies. Movies? Yes, movies. Look at them. Uh, all of those glamorous people having uh, adventures, hogging it all, gobbling the whole thing up. You know what happens? People go to the movies instead of moving. Hollywood characters are supposed to have all the adventures for everybody in America. Well, everybody in America sits in a dark room and watches them have them. Yes, until there's war. That's when adventure becomes available to the masses. Everyone's dish, not only, not only Gables, Gables. Then the people in the dark room come out of the dark room to have some adventures themselves. Goody, goody. It's our turn now to go to the South Sea Islands, to make a safari, to be exotic far off. But I'm not patient. I don't want to wait till then. I'm tired of the movies, and I am about to move. Move? Yes. When? Soon. Where? Where? I, I, I'm starting to boil inside. I, I know I, I seem dream, but inside, well, I'm boiling. Whenever I pick up a shoe, I shudder a little thinking how short life is and what am I doing? Whatever that means. I know it, it doesn't mean shoes except as something to wear on a traveler's feet. <laughs> uh, look. What? I'm a member. The Union of Merchant Seamen. Uh, I paid my dues this month uh, instead of the light bill. You'll regret it when they turn the lights off. Well, I won't be here. And how about your mother? I'm like my father, the bastard son of a bastard. Uh, see how he grins? And he's been absent going on 16 years. You're just talking, you dread. How does your mother feel about it? Hey, here comes mother. Uh, mother is not acquainted with my plans. Where are you all? On the terrace, mother. Start inside. She advances to them. Tom is distinctly shocked at her appearance. Even Jim blinks a little. He is making his first contact with girlish sudden vivacity, and in spite of the night school course in public speaking, is somewhat thrown off the beam by the unexpected outlay of social charm. Certain responses are attempted by Jim that are swept aside by Amanda's gay laughter and chatter. Tom is embarrassed, but after the first shock, Jim reacts very warmly, grins and chuckles, is altogether won over. Amanda smiles coyly, shaking her girlish ringlets. Well, well, well. So this is Mr. O'Connor. Introductions, 
entirely unnecessary. I've heard so much about you from my boy. I finally said to him, Tom, good gracious, why don't you bring this paragon to supper? I'd like to meet this nice young man at the warehouse instead of just hearing you sing his praises so much. I don't know why my son is so standoffish. That's not Southern behavior. Let's sit down and I think we could stand a little more air in here. Tom, leave the door open. I felt a nice fresh breeze a moment ago. Where has it gone to? Hmm, so warm already and not quite summer even. We're going to bum up when summer really gets started. However, we're having we're having a very light supper. I think light things are better for this time of year, the same as light colors are, like clothes and light food, are what, what warm weather calls for. You know, our blood gets so thick during the winter. It takes a while for us to adjust ourselves just when the season changes. It's come so quick this year. I wasn't prepared. All of a sudden, heavens, already summer. I ran to the trunk and pulled out this little dress. Terribly old, historical almost, but feels so good, so good and cool, you know? Mother. Yes, honey? Uh, how about uh, supper? Honey, you go ask sister if supper's ready. You know that sister is in full charge of supper. Tell her you hungry boys are wanting for it. Have you met Laura? Uh, she, uh... Let you in? Oh, good, you've already met. It's rare for a girl sweet and pretty as Laura to be domestic, but Laura is, thank heavens, not only pretty, but also very domestic. Um, not at all. Never was a bit. I could never make a thing but angel food cake. Well, in the South, we had so many servants. Gone, gone, gone. All vestige of gracious living. Gone completely. I wasn't prepared for what the future brought me. All of my gentlemen callers were sons of planters. And so, of course, I assumed that I would be married to one and raise my family on a large piece of land with plenty of servants. But man proposes and women accepts the proposal to that very, to vary that old, old saying a little bit. I married no planter. I married a man who worked for the telephone company. <laughs> that gallant smiling gentleman over there. A telephone man who fell in love with long distance. <laughs> now he travels and I don't even know where, but what am I going on and on about my tribulations? Tell me yours. I hope you don't have any. Tom? Uh, yes, mother? Is supper nearly ready? Uh, it looks like to me uh, supper is on the table. Let me look. Oh, lovely. Where is sister? Laura is not feeling well, and she says that she thinks she'd better not come to the table. What? Nonsense! Laura? Oh, Laura? Yes, Mother? You really must come to the table. We won't be seated until you come to the table. Come in, Mr. O'Connor. You sit over there, and Laura, Laura Wingfield, you're keeping us waiting, honey. We can't say grace until you come to the table. Back door is pushed weakly open and Laura comes in. She is obviously quite faint, her lips trembling, her eyes wide and staring. 
she moves unsteadily toward the table. Outside, a summer storm is coming abruptly. The white curtains billow inward at the windows and there is a sorrowful murmur and deep blue dusk. Laura suddenly stumbles. She catches at a chair with a faint moan. Laura! Laura! Why, Laura, you are sick, darling. Tom, help your sister into the living room, dear. Sit in the living room, Laura. Rest on the sofa. Well, standing over the hot stove made her ill. I told her that was just too warm this evening, but is Laura all right now? Yes. What is that? Rain? A nice cool rain has come up. She gives the gentleman caller a frightened look. I think we may have grace now. Tom looks at her steadily. Tom, honey, you say grace. Oh. For these and all thy mercies. They bow their heads. Amanda stealing a nervous glance at Jim. In the living room, Laura stretched out on the sofa, clenches her hands to her lips to hold back a shuddering sob. God's holy name be praised. The scene dims out. A souvenir. Half an hour later, dinner is just being finished in the upstage area, which is concealed by the drawn portieres. As the curtain rises, Laura is still huddled on the sofa, her feet drawn beside her, her head resting on a pale blue pillow, her eyes wide and mysteriously watchful. The new floor lamp with its shade of rose-colored silk gives a soft, soft, becoming light to her face, bringing out the fragile, unearthly prettiness, which usually escapes attention. There's a steady murmur of rain, but it is slackening and stops soon after the scene begins. The air outside becomes pale and luminous as the moon breaks out. A moment after the curtain rises, the lights in both rooms flicker and go out. Hey there, Mr. Lightbulb. <laughs> Where was Moses when the lights went out? <laughs> Do you know the answer to that one, Mr. O'Connor? No, ma'am. What's the answer? In the dark. (laughs) Everybody sit still. I'll light the candles. Isn't it lucky we have them on the table? Where's a match? Which of you gentlemen can provide a match? Here. Thank you, sir. Not at all, ma'am. I guess the fuse is burnt out. Mr. O'Connor, can you tell a burnt out fuse? I know I can't, and Tom is a total loss when it comes to mechanics. Getting up, voices recede a little to kitchenette. Oh, but be careful you don't bump into something. We don't want our gentleman caller to break his neck. Now, wouldn't that be a fine how to do? <laughs> Where is the, the fuse box? Right here next to the stove. Can you see anything? Just a minute. Isn't electricity a mysterious thing? Wasn't it Benjamin Franklin who tied a key to a kite? <laughs> We live in such a mysterious universe, don't we? Some people say that science clears up all the mysteries for us. In my opinion, it only creates more. Have you found it yet? Uh, No, ma'am. All these fuses look okay to me. Tom? Yes, mother? That light bill I gave you several days ago, the one I told you we got the notices about? Oh, uh, yeah. Did you? You didn't neglect to pay it by any chance. Why, I, uh, 
didn't. I might have known it. Shakespeare probably wrote a poem on that light bill, Mrs. Ringfield. I might have known better than to trust him with it. There's such a high price for negligence in this world. Maybe the poem will win a $10 prize. We'll just have to spend the remaining of the evening in the 19th century before Mr. Edison made the master lamp. Candlelight is my favorite kind of light. That shows you're a romantic, but that's no excuse for Tom. Well, we got through dinner. Very considerate of them to let us get through dinner before they plunged us into everlasting darkness, wasn't it, Mr. O'Connor? <laughs> Tom, as a penalty for your carelessness, you can help me with the dishes. Let me give you a hand. Indeed, you will not. I, I ought to be good for something. Good for something? <laughs> you, are Mr. O'Connor, nobody. Nobody's given me this much entertainment in years as you have. Oh, now, Mrs. Wingfield. I'm not exaggerating. Not one bit. But sisters, I'll buy her lonesome. You, you go and keep her company in the parlor. I'll give you this lovely old candelabra that used to be on the altar at the Church of the Heavenly Rest. It was melted a little out of shape when the church burnt down. Lightning struck it one spring. Gypsy Jones was holding a revival at the time and he intimidated that the church was destroyed because the Episcopalians gave card parties. <laughs> and how about you coaxing sister to drink a little wine? I think it would be good for her. Can you carry both at once? Sure, I'm Superman. <laughs> now Thomas, get into this apron. Door of the kitchenette swings closed on Amanda's gay laughter. The flickering light approaches the portiers. Laura sits up nervously as he enters. Her speech at first is low and breathless from the almost intolerable strain of being alone with the stranger. In her first speeches in this scene, before Jim's warmth overcomes her paralyzing shyness, Laura's voice is thin and breathless, as though she has just run up a steep flight of stairs. Jim's attitude is generally humorous. In playing this scene, it should be stressed that while the incident is apparently unimportant, it is to Laura the climax of her secret life. Hello there, Laura. Hello. How are you feeling now? Uh, better? Yes. Yes. Thank you. This is for you. A little uh, dandelion wine. Thank you. Drink it, but don't get drunk. Uh, oh. Where shall I set the candles? Oh, uh, uh, anywhere. Uh, how about here? On the floor. Any objections? No. I'll spread a newspaper under to catch the drippings. I, I like to sit on the floor. You mind if I do? Oh, no. Uh, give, give me a pillow. What? Uh, a pillow. Oh. Uh... How about you? Don't, don't you like to sit on the floor? Yes. Oh, uh, why don't you then? I will. Take a pillow. <clears throat> Laura does, sits on the other side of the candelabra. Jim crosses his legs and smiles engagingly at her. <laughs> I can't hardly see you sitting way over there. I can see you. I know, but that's not fair. I'm in the limelight. Laura moves her pillow closer. <laughs> Good. Now I can see you. Are you comfortable? Yes. So am I. 
comfortable as a cow. Uh, will you have some gum? No, thank you. I think that I will indulge, with your permission. Think of the fortune made by the guy that invented the first piece of chewing gum. It's amazing. The, the Ridley Building is one of these sites of Chicago. I saw it summer before last when I, I went up to the Century of Progress. Did, did you take in the, the Century of Progress? No, I didn't. Well, it, it was quite a wonderful exposition. What impressed me most was the Hall of Science. It gives you an idea of what the future will be in America, even more wonderful than the present time is. Your brother tells me you're shy, is, is that right, Laura? I, I don't know. I judge you to be an old fashioned type of girl. Well, I, I think that's a pretty good type to be. I, I hope you don't think I'm being too personal, do you? Uh, I believe I, I will take a piece of gum, if you don't mind. <clears throat> Mr. O'Connor, have you kept up with your singing? Singing? Me? Yes, I remember what a beautiful voice you had. When did you hear me sing? Voice uh, off stage. Uh, oh, blow you uh, winds, hi-ho. A roving I will go. I'm off to my love with a boxing glove 10,000 miles away. You say you've heard me sing? Oh, yes. Yes, very often. I, I don't suppose you remember me at all. You know, I, I had an idea I've seen you before. Uh, I, I had that idea as soon as you opened the door. It seemed almost like I, I was about to remember your name, but the name I started to call you wasn't a name. So I, I stopped myself before I said it. Wasn't it Blue Roses? Blue Roses? My gosh. Yeah, Blue, Blue Roses. That, that's what I had in my tongue when you opened the door. Isn't it funny what tricks your memory plays? I, I, I didn't connect you with high school somehow or other, but that's where it was. It, it was high school. I didn't even know you were Shakespeare's sister. God, I, I'm sorry. I didn't expect you to. You barely knew me. But we did have a, a speaking acquaintance, huh? Yes, we spoke to each other. When did you recognize me? Oh, right away. As soon as I came in the door? When I heard your name, I thought it was probably you. I, I knew that Tom used to know you a little in high school, so when you came to the door, well, then I was sure. Why didn't you say something then? I, I didn't know what to say. I, I was too surprised. Oh, for goodness sake. You, you know, this, this show is funny. Yes. Uh, yes, isn't didn't, it, though? Didn't we have a, a class in something together? Yes, we did. What class was that? It was singing, chorus. Ah. I, I sat across the aisle from you in the odd. Ah. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Now I remember, you always came in late. Yes. It was so hard for me to get upstairs. I, I had that brace on my leg. It clumped so loudly. I, I, I never heard any clumping. To me, it sounded like thunder. Well, well, I, I never even noticed. And everybody was seated before I came in. I, I had to walk in front of all those people. My seat was in the back row. I had to go clumping all the way up the aisle with everyone watching. I, I, you shouldn't have been self-conscious. I, 
I know, but I was. It was always such a relief when the singing started. Yeah, I, I've placed you now. I, I used to call you Blue Roses. How was it that I got started calling you that? I, I was at a school a little while with pleurosis. When I came back, you asked me what was the matter. I, I said I had pleurosis. You, you thought I said Blue Roses. That's what you always call me after that. Oh, I, I hope you didn't mind. No, I, I liked it. You see, I wasn't acquainted with many people, so. As I remember, you you sort of stuck by yourself. I, mean, I never have had much luck at making friends. I don't see why you wouldn't. Well, I, I started out badly. You mean being? Yes, it, it sort of stood between me and. Oh, you, you shouldn't have let it. I know. But it did, and, and then... And you were shy with people? I tried not to be, but never could. I... O overcome it? No, I never could. I guess being shy is something you, you have to work out of kind of gradually. Yes, uh, I guess it is. Takes time. Yes. People are not so dreadful when you know them. That's what you have to remember. And everybody has problems, not just you, but practically everybody has got problems. You think of yourself as, as having the only problems, as being the only one who's disappointed, but just look around you. You will see lots of people as uh, as disappointed as you are. For instance, I, I hoped when I was going to high school that I would be further along at this time, six years later than, than I am now. You remember that, that wonderful write-up I had in the torch? Yes. He said I was bound to succeed in anything I went into. Uh, returns with the annual. Oh. Holy shit. Oh, <laughs> he accepts it reverently. They smile and toss it with mutual wonder. Laura crouches beside him and they begin to turn through it. Laura's shyness is dissolving in his warmth. Here you are in the Pirates of Penzance. I sang the, the baritone lead in that operetta. So beautifully. Uh -huh. Yes, yes, beautifully, beautifully. You heard me? All three times. No. Yes. All three performances? Yes. Why? Uh, I wanted to ask you to autograph my program. I... Why, why didn't you ask me to? You were always surrounded by your own friends and I, I never had a chance to, so. You should have just. Well, I, I thought you might think that I was. You thought I might think you uh, were what? I, I, well, I thought. I, I was beleaguered by females in those days. You were terribly popular. Yeah. You had such a friendly way. I, I was spoiled in high school. Everybody liked you. Including you? I... Yes, I did too. She gently closes the book in her lap. Well, well, give me that program, Laura. She hands it to him. He signs it with a flourish. There you are. Better late than never. I, uh, <laughs> what a surprise. 
my signature isn't worth very much right now, but someday maybe it will increase in value. Being disappointed is one thing. Being discouraged is something else. I'm disappointed, but I'm not discouraged. I'm 23 years old. How, how old are you? I'll be 24 in June. That's not old age. No, but I... You finished high school? I didn't go back. You mean you dropped out? I made bad grades in my final examinations. Uh, how, how places the book and the program. How is Emily Meisenbach getting along? Oh, that, yeah. What, what happened? Why do you call her that? That's what she was. You're not still going with her? I, I never see her. It said in the personal section that you were engaged. I know, but I, I wasn't impressed by that propaganda. It wasn't the truth? Uh, only in Emily's optimistic opinion. Oh. Jim lights a cigarette and leans indolently back on his elbow, smiling at Laura with a warmth and charm, which lights her inwardly with alter candor. She remains by the table and turns in her hands a piece of glass to cover her tumult. Jim takes several reflective puffs on a cigarette. What have you done since uh, high school? I, I said, what have you done since high school, Laura? Nothing much. You must have been doing something these uh, these six long years. Yes. Well then, such as what? I took a business course at business college. How did that work out? Uh, well, not very well. I, I had to drop out. It, it gave me indigestion. What are you doing now? I don't do anything much. Oh, oh, please don't think I sit around doing nothing. My glass collection takes up a good deal of my time. Glass is something you have to take good care of. What did you say about glass? Uh, collection. I said I have one. <clears throat> you know what I judge to be the trouble with you? Inferiority complex. You know what that is? That's what they call it when someone low rates himself. I understand because I, I had it too. Although my Michael was not so aggravated as yours seems to be, I had it until I took up public speaking, developed my voice, and learned that I had an attitude for science. But before that time, I never thought of myself as being outstanding in any way whatsoever. Now, I've never made a regular study of it, but I have a friend who says I can analyze people better than doctors that make a profession of it. I don't claim that to be necessarily true, but I can draw a guess a person's psychology, Laura. Excuse me, I, I always take it out when the flavor is gone. I'll use a scrap of paper to wrap it in. I know how it is to get it stuck on a shoe. That, that's what I address to be your principal trouble, a lack of amount of faith in yourself as a person. You don't have the proper amount of faith in yourself. I'm basing that fact on a number of your remarks and, and also on certain observations I've made. For instance, that, that clumping you thought was so awful in high school, you say that you even dreaded to walk into class. You see what you did? You, you dropped out of school, you gave up on education because of a clump, which as far as I know was practically non-existent. A little physical defect is what you have, hardly noticeable even, magnified thousands of times by imagination. You know what my strong advice to you is? Think of yourself as superior in some way. In what way would I think? Why, man alive, Laura, just look about you a little. What do you see? A world full of 
common people, all, all of them born and all of them going to die. Which, which of them has one-tenth of your good points or, or mine or, or anyone else's as far as that goes? Gosh, everybody excels in some one thing, some in many. All you've got to do is discover in what? Take me, for instance. My interest happens to lie in electrodynamics. I'm taking a course in radio engineering at night school, Laura, on, on top of a fairly responsible job at the warehouse. I'm taking that course and studying public speaking because oh. I believe in the future of television. I wish to be ready to go up right along with it. Therefore, I'm planning to get in on the ground floor. In fact, I've already made the right connections and all that remains is for the industry itself to get underway. Full steam. Knowledge, money, power. That's the cycle democracy is built on. His attitude is convincingly dynamic. Laura stares at him. Even her shyness eclipsed in her absolute wonder. He suddenly grins. I guess you think I think a lot of myself. No. Now, how about you? Isn't there something you take more interest in than anything else? Well, I do, as I said, have my glass collection. A peal of girlish laughter from the kitchen. I, I'm not right sure I know what you're talking about. What kind of glass is it? Little articles of it. They're ornaments, mostly. I, most of them are little animals made out of glass. The tiniest little animals in the world. Uh, mother calls them a glass menagerie. Um, here's an example of one. If you'd like to see it, I... This is one of my oldest. It's nearly 13. Uh, oh, be careful. If you breathe, it breaks. Better not take it. I'm pretty clumsy with things. Go on. I trust you with them. There now. You're holding him gently. Hold him over the light. He loves the light. You see how it shines through him? It sure does shine. I shouldn't be partial, but he's my favorite one. What what kind of a thing is, is this one supposed to be? Haven't you noticed a single horn on his forehead? Uh, a unicorn, huh? Mm-hmm. Unicorns, aren't they extinct in the modern world? I know. The poor little fellow. He, he must feel sort of lonesome. Well, if he does, he doesn't complain about it. He stays on a shelf with some horses that don't have horns, and all of them seem to get along nicely together. How do you know? I haven't heard any arguments among them. No arguments, huh? <laughs> well, that's a pretty good sign. Where shall I set him? Uh, put him on the table. They all like a change of scenery once in a while. <laughs> well, well, look how big my shadow is when I stretch. <laughs> yes, stretches across the ceiling. I think it stopped raining. Where does the music come from? Uh, from the Paradise Dance Hall, across the alley. How about cutting the rug a little, Mrs. Wingfield? Oh, I... Oh, Miss Wingfield, excuse me. Or, or is your, your program filled up? Let me have a look at it. Like, uh, every dance is taken. I'll just have to scratch some out. Ah, a waltz. Uh, I, I, I can't dance. <laughs> There you go, that inferiority stuff. Come on, try. Oh, but I'd step on you. I'm not made out of glass. How, how do we start? Just leave it to me. You hold your arms out a little. Like this? A little bit higher. Right, now don't tighten up. That, that's the main thing about it, relax. <laughs> it's hard not to. I'm afraid you can't budge me. Oh, what do you bet I can't? 
<laughs> Goodness, yes, you can. Let yourself go now, Laura. Just let yourself go. I'm. Come on. <laughs> Try. Not, not, so, not, not so stiff. Easy does it. <laughs> I, I know, but I'm. <laughs> Loosen the backbone. There. Now that that's a lot better. Am I? Lots, lots better. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> I... <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> they suddenly they suddenly bump into the table. Jim stops. What did we hit on? The table. Uh, did, did, did something fall off it? Uh, I, I think. Oh, I, yes. I hope it wasn't the little glass horse with the horn. Yes. Uh, it, is it broken? Now it's just like all the other horses. <laughs> it's lost its horn. It, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Oh, you'll never forgive me. I bet that was your favorite piece of glass. I don't have favorites much. It, it's no tragedy. Glass breaks so easily, no matter how careful you are. The traffic jars the shelves and things fall off of them. Still, I, I'm awfully sorry that I was the cause. I'll imagine he had an operation. The horn was removed to make him feel less uh, freakish. <laughs> now he'll feel more, more at home with the other horses, the ones that don't have horns. <laughs> Very funny. I, I'm, I'm glad to see you have a sense of humor. You, you know, you're, well, you're very different, surprisingly different from anyone else I know. Do you mind me telling you that? I, I mean it in a nice way. You make me feel sort of, I don't know how to put it. I'm usually pretty good at expressing things, but this is something I, I don't know how to say. Has, has anyone ever told you that you were pretty? Well, you are in, in a very different way from anyone else and, and all the nicer because of the difference too. My voice becomes low and husky. Laura turns away, nearly faint with the novelty of her emotions. I, I wish that you, you were my sister. I, I, I teach you to have some confidence in yourself. The, the different people are, are not like other people, but being different is nothing to be ashamed of because other people are not such wonderful people. They're, they're 100 times 1,000. You're one times one. They, they, they walk all over the earth. You just stay here. They're common as weeds, but you're, you're blue roses. Music changes. But Blue is wrong for roses. It's right for you. You're pretty. In what respect am I pretty? In all respects, believe me, your eyes, your 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 hair's pretty, your your hands are pretty. You think I'm making this up because I'm I'm invited to dinner and I have to be nice. I, I could do that. I could put on an act for you, Laura, and, and and say lots of things without being very sincere. But but this time I am. I'm I'm talking to you sincerely. I, I happen to notice you have this inferiority complex that keeps you from feeling comfortable with people. Somebody needs to build your confidence up and, and make you proud instead of shy and, and turning away and, and blushing. Somebody ought, ought, ought to kiss you, Laura. His hand slips slowly up to her arm, to her shoulder. Music swells tumultuously. He suddenly turns her about and kisses her on the lips. When he releases her, Laura sinks on the sofa with a breeze, with a bright dazed look. Jim backs away and fishes in his pocket for a cigarette. Stumbled on. 
lights the cigarette, avoiding her look. There is a peal of girlish laughter from Amanda in the kitchen. Laura slowly raises and opens her hand. It still contains the little broken glass animal. She looks at it with a tender, bewildered expression. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. That was way off the beam. You don't, you don't smoke, do you? She looks up, smiling, not hearing the question. He sits beside her a little gingerly. She looks at him speechlessly, waiting. He coughs decorously and moves a little further aside as he considers the situation and senses her feelings, dimly, with perturbation, gently. Would you care for a, a mint? She doesn't seem to hear him, but her look grows brighter even. Peppermint? It's a lifesaver. My pocket is a regular drugstore wherever I go. He pops a mint in his mouth, then gulps and decides to make a clean breast of it. He speaks slowly and gingerly. Laura, you, you know, if I had a sister like you, I'd, I'd, I'd do the same thing as Tom. I'd, I'd bring out fellows and introduce her to them, the, the right type of voice of a type to appreciate her. Only, well, he, he made a mistake about me. Maybe I've got no call to be saying this. this that may not have been the idea in, in having me over, but what if it was? There's nothing wrong about that. The, the only trouble is that in my case, I'm, I'm not in a situation to, to do the right thing. I can't take your number down and, and say our phone. I can't call up next week and ask for a date. I, I thought I had better explain the situation in case you you misunderstand it and, and hurt your feelings. Slowly, very slowly, Laura's look changes, her eyes returning slowly from his to the ornament in her palm. Amanda utters another gay laugh in the kitchen. You, you won't call again? No, Laura, I, I can't. As I was just explaining, I've got strings on me, Laura. I've been going steady. I, I go out all the time with a, a girl named Betty. She's, she's a home girl like, like you and Catholic and Irish. In a great many ways, we, we get along fine. I met her last summer on a, a moonlight boat trip up the river to Alton on, on the Majestic. And well, right away from the start, it, it was love. Laura sways slightly forward and grips the arm of the sofa. He fails to notice, now enwrapped in his own comfortable being. Being in love has, has made a new man out of me. Leaning stiffly forward, clutching the arm of the sofa, Laura struggles visibly with her storm, but Jim is oblivious, she a long way off. The power of love really, really is pretty tremendous. Love is something that changes the whole world, Laura. The storm abates a little and Laura leans back. He notices her again. It happened that Betty's aunt took sick. She she got a wire and had to go to Centralia. So so Tom, when when he asked me to dinner, I I naturally just accepted the invitation, not knowing that you that that, that he that <laughs> um, I'm a stumble done. He flops back on the sofa. The holy candles on the altar of Laura's face have been snuffed out. There is a look of almost infinite desolation. Jim glances at her uneasily. I I wish that you would say something. She bites her lip, which was trembling, and then bravely smiles. She opens her hand again on the broken glass ornament. Then she gently takes his hand and raises it level with her own. She carefully places the unicorn in the palm of his hand, then pushes his fingers closed upon it. What are you doing that for? You, you want me to have him? What for? Souvenir. She rushes unsteadily and crouches beside the Victrola to wind it up. At this moment, Amanda rushes brightly back in the front room. 
She bears a pitcher of fruit punch in an old-fashioned cut glass pitcher and a plate of macaroons. The plate has a gold border and poppies painted on it. Well, 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 isn't the air delightful after a shower? I've made you children a little liquid refreshment. <sighs> Jim, do you know that song about lemonade? Lemonade, lemonade, made in the shade and stirred with a spade, good enough for any old maid. <laughs> no, I, I, I never heard it. <gasps> Why, Laura, you look so serious. We were having a, a serious conversation. Good. Now you're better acquainted. Yes. You modern young people are much more serious-minded than my generation. I was so gay as a girl. You haven't changed, Mrs. Wingfield. Oh, tonight I am rejuvenated. The gaiety of the occasion, Mr. O'Connor. <laughs> oh, I'm baptizing myself. <laughs> yeah, let me. There. There now. I discovered that we had some maraschino cherries. I dumped them in. Juice. And oh, you shouldn't have gone to that trouble, Mrs. Wingfield. Trouble? Trouble? Why, it was loads of fun. Didn't you hear me cutting it up in the kitchen? I bet your ears were burning. I told Tom how outdone with him I was for keeping you to himself for so long. He should have brought you over much, much sooner. Well, now that you found your way, I want you to be a very Frequent caller, not just an occasional, but all the time. Oh, we are going to have lots of gay times together. I see them coming. <sighs> just breathe in that air, so fresh, and the moon is so pretty. I'll skip back out. I know where my place is when young folks are having a serious conversation. <laughs> oh, don't go out, Mrs. Springfield. The, the fact of the matter is I, I've got to be going. Going? Now you're joking. Why, it's only the shank of the evening, Mr. Connor. Well, you know how it is. You mean you're a young working man and have to keep working men's hours? Well... I'll let you off early tonight, but only on the condition that next time you stay later. What's the best night for you? Isn't Saturday night the best night for you working men? I have a couple of time clocks to punch, Mrs. Wingfield. Uh, one at morning, uh, another one at night. My, but you are ambitious. You work at night too? N no, ma'am, not work, but uh, Betty. He crosses deliberately to pick up his hat. The band at the Paradise Dance Hall goes into a tender waltz. Betty? Betty? <laughs> Who's Betty? Uh, just a girl. The, uh, the girl I go steady with. He smiles charmingly. The sky falls. Oh. Is it a serious romance, Mr. O'Connor? We're going to be married the, the second Sunday in June. Oh, 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 how nice. Tom didn't mention that you were engaged to be married. The cat's not out of the bag at the warehouse yet. You know how they are. They call you Romeo and, and stuff like that. 
He stops at the oval mirror to put on his hat. He carefully shapes the brim and the crown to give it a discreetly dashing effect. It's been a wonderful evening, Mrs. Springfield. I, I guess this is what they mean by Southern hospitality. It really wasn't anything at all. I hope it don't seem like I'm rushing off, but I promised Betty I'd pick her up at the, the Wabash Depot, and by the time I get my jalopy down there, her train will be in. Some women are pretty, pretty upset if you keep them waiting. Yes, I know. The tyranny of women. Goodbye, Mr. O'Connor. I wish you luck and happiness and success. All three of them. And so does Laura. Don't you, Laura? Yes. Goodbye, Laura. I'm certainly going to treasure that souvenir. And don't you forget the good advice I gave you. So long, Shakespeare. Thanks again, ladies. Good night. And ducks jauntily out. Still bravely grimacing, Amanda closes the door on the gentleman caller. Then she turns back to the room with a puzzled expression. She and, Lara, she and Laura don't dare face each other. Laura crouches beside the Victrola to wind it. Things have a way of turning out so badly. I don't believe that I would play the Victrola. Well, 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 our gentleman caller was engaged to be married. Tom? Uh, yes, Mother. Come in here a minute. I want to tell you something awfully funny. Tom enters uh, with macaroon and a glass of lemonade. Has the gentleman caller gotten away already? The gentleman caller has made an early departure. What a wonderful joke you played on us. Uh, how do you mean? Well. You didn't mention that he was engaged to be married. Jim? Engaged? That's what he just informed us. Well, I'll be jiggered. I didn't know about that. That seems very peculiar. What's peculiar about it? Well, didn't you call him your best friend down at the warehouse? He is, but how did I know? It seems extremely peculiar that you wouldn't know that your best friend was going to be married. The warehouse is where I work, not where I know things about people. You don't know things anywhere. You live in a dream. You manufacture illusions. Where are you going? I'm going to the movies. That's right. Now that you've had us make such fools of ourselves, the effort preparations, all the expense, the new floor lamp, the rug, the clothes for Laura, all for what? To entertain some other girl's fiancé? Go to the movies. Go. Don't think about us. A mother deserted, an unmarried sister who's crippled and has no job. Don't let anything interfere with your selfish pleasure. Just go. Go, go, go to the movies. All right. I will. The more you shout about my selfishness, the the quicker I'll go, and I won't go to the movies. Go then. Then go to the moon, you selfish dreamer. Tom smashes his glass on the floor. He plunges out on the fire escape, slamming the door. Laura screams. Dance hall music up. Tom goes to the rail and grips sit desperately, lifting his face in the chill while moonlight penetrating narrow abyss of the alley. 
Tom's closing speech is timed with the interior pantomime. The interior scene is played as, through view, as viewed through soundproof glass. Amanda appears to be making a comforting speech to Laura, who has huddled upon the sofa. Now that we cannot hear the mother's speech, her silliness is gone, and she has dignity and tragic beauty. Laura's dark hair hides her face until at the end of the speech, she lifts it to smile at her mother. Amanda's gestures are slow and graceful, almost dance-like as she comforts the daughter. At the end of the speech, she glances a moment at the father's picture, then withdraws through the portiers. At the close of Tom's speech, Laura blows out the candles, ending the play. I didn't go to the moon. I went much further. Time is the longest distance between places. Not long after that, I was fired for writing a poem on the lid of a shoebox. I left St. Louis. I descended the step of this fire escape for a last time and followed from then on in my father's footsteps, attempting to find in motion what was lost in space. I traveled around a great deal. The cities swept about me like dead leaves, leaves that were brightly colored but torn away from the branches. I would have stopped, but I was pursued by something. It always came upon me unawares, taking me altogether by surprise. Uh, perhaps it was a familiar bit of music. Uh, perhaps it was only a piece of transparent glass. Perhaps uh, I am walking along the street at night in, in some strange city before I have found companions. I passed the lighted window of a shop where a perfume is sold. The window is filled with pieces of colored glass, tiny transparent bottles in delicate colors, like bits of shattered rainbow. Then, all at once, my sister touches my shoulder. I turn around and look into her eyes. Oh, Laura. Laura, I, I tried to leave you behind me, but... I am more faithful than I intended to be. I reach for a cigarette. I cross the street. I run into the movies or a bar. I buy a drink. I speak to the nearest stranger. Anything that can blow your candles out. Laura bends over the candles. For nowadays, the world is lit by lightning. Blow out your candles, Laura. And so goodbye. She blows the candles out. The scene dissolves. <laughs>